Hi everyone, I'm Rosemary Eldridge with the Catholic Information Center. I'm very excited and honored to be here with the most reverend Timothy Broglio. He's the Archbishop for the Archdiocese of Military Services. And tonight we're here for the event, Serving Those Who Serve. We're gonna talk about the religious liberty issues at stake in our armed forces today and the vital role that this archdiocese plays in our country. If you have any questions throughout the night, be sure to use the YouTube chat box to the left of your screen. I'm gonna be monitoring this throughout the event and we'll pull questions from there for our question and answer period. And with that, I would like to yield the screen uh, to Archbishop Timothy Broglio. All right. Thank you very much. Am I visible? Almost there. There we go. All right. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Rosemary, for the kind introduction. And thank you also for the opportunity to uh, talk about the Archdiocese for Military Services and serving those who, who serve. It's um, perhaps the best kept secret in the, in the Catholic Church, how to minister to men and women in the military and their families, uh, patients in Veterans Administration hospitals, and then also uh, those who serve the United States outside of our country. And it's good to have a little bit of a, an historical perspective. Um, probably everyone knows that after George Washington was charged with the uh, command of the Continental Army, the first thing he asked the Continental Congress for was chaplains. And he wanted chaplains to meet the religious needs of the troops but he also wanted them to be his advisors. So the Continental Congress voted and they gave him chaplains with a captain's salary. Of course, in the United States or in the 13 original colonies at that time, there weren't very many Catholics, probably less than a million. So none of those first chaplains were Catholics. In fact, the only time we saw Catholic priests in the military in those early years was occasionally a ship would invite a priest to be a teacher and he would perhaps minister to the uh, the faithful on board but he was basically there as a teacher so we had to wait until the war with mexico and Fra uh, uh, president polk decided that uh, it would be dangerous to have this war interpreted as a war between the Protestant United States and Catholic Mexico. So he asked the Bishop of New York, New York was not yet an archdiocese, if he would provide some priests. So like every good diocesan bishop, he asked a religious order to send him some priests. So the Jesuits sent him Antonio Rey and John McElroy and uh, these were the first two priests to actually be chaplains in uh, the United States Army. Uh, Father Ray was killed during the Mexican-American War, and uh, Father McElroy went on to uh, found uh, Boston College, which happens to be my alma mater. So I guess there was a, a 
a deep-seated link between myself and the Archdiocese for Military Services. In, um, during the Civil War, uh, care for Catholics was very interesting because basically the units who were for the most part state militia brought their chaplains with them. If their chaplain happened to be a Catholic priest, then you had a Catholic priest in the military. And there were generally about 20 in the Confederacy and 20 in uh, the Union Army at any one time. And of course, that's where you first began to experience the difficulties of care for Catholics in the military because as the campaign advanced or as it retreated, they passed through different dioceses and the priest didn't have faculties. So they'd have to get faculties from a local bishop. And of course, because it was a civil war, there was intense, there were intense feelings on both sides. You had the Bishop of Richmond at the time saying that he would suspend any priest who ministered to Union troops. Difficult for us to understand today, but that's the way the situation was then. Finally, on the 4th of April, 1888, the Archbishop of New York was given exclusive competence to endorse Roman Catholic chaplains for the United States Navy. It is, of course, in the outbreak, at the outbreak of World War I, that there is an experience of the scarcity of priests. So at the outbreak of World War I, there were 16 priests in the regular army, eight in the Navy, and 10 in the National Guard. By the end of the First World War, there were 1,026 priests on active duty. 762 were diocesan, 264 were religious. And those also included those funded by the Knights of Columbus. So there were some in the regular military and there were some who were funded by the Knights of Columbus. Of course, it's also during the First World War that the National Catholic War Council is founded by the bishops, which changes its name after the war to the National Catholic Welfare uh, Conference and then becomes the Conference of Catholic Bishops. So it's the forerunner of what is today the USCCB. Um, it is curious that in the 20th and 21st century, all the chaplains who won the Medal of Honor, who were awarded the Medal of Honor, were Catholic priests. Very significant uh, statement there. Um, from 1917 to 1983, the military vicariate was always governed by the Archbishop of New York. So first, Patrick Hayes, who was an auxiliary bishop of New York, was made the military vicar. When he became the Archbishop of New York, he continued that function. He was succeeded by Francis Cardinal Spellman, who was very famous for ministering to the troops. I don't think he ever celebrated Christmas mass in St. Patrick's Cathedral. He was always someplace where American soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen were deployed. 
He was succeeded by Terence Cardinal Cook. And then in 1983, when Cardinal Cook passed away, uh, his successor, who was a military chaplain, in fact, he had been chief of the Navy chaplains, John Cardinal O'Connor, was not named military vicar. Instead, they named um, Archbishop Joseph Ryan as the coadjutor military vicar. And then in 1986, the Archdiocese for the Military Services was founded and he became the first archbishop, succeeded by Archbishop Dimino, who was a Navy chaplain as well, succeeded by now uh, Ed, Edwin Cardinal O'Brien, was also a, uh, had been an army chaplain during Vietnam, and then succeeded in 2007 by myself. Um, so that's a little, just a little overview of pastoral care of Catholics in the military. Now, um, you might ask, uh, why is this important? Well, it's important because if you're in the military, you have certain specific needs. And a military chaplain, regardless of his faith group, is the only person on a military installation who never has to report that he saw someone or that um, a person has a problem. So if you go to the medical offices, if you go to the uh, psychiatrist or the psychologist, they have to tell the command that this individual has come to see me. A chaplain has absolute confidentiality and that's regardless of his or her faith group. So chaplains are completely free. Secondly, military moves constantly and frequently they move with their families. So it's good to uh, have a system where there is a uh, an organized curriculum. The Archdiocese for Military Services has an established curriculum for religious education from pre-K to 12th grade. So that if there is a move in the middle of the year, you go from Ramstein in Germany to um, uh, McGuire, uh, Dix, Lakehurst in New Jersey, you may not be using the same books, but you will be studying the same material. Diocese, territorial dioceses, for a good reason, have uh, specific rules and regulations. They have time periods that have to be respected. Uh, in general, in the military, we're much more able to understand and waive those requirements, um, even for in terms of sacramental preparation. Um, generally, the chaplains and those charged with religious education can respond very quickly to a situation and try and meet the needs of the individual. Also, of course, in this period, we've been at war for almost 19 years. That has produced any number of, of difficulties among those who are fighting the war. Certainly a military chaplain or someone on a military base is much better able and prepared to deal with that situation than uh, someone in a civilian parish. Um, and there's also the whole issue of welcome. However, 
A military member is always free to make use of either the local parish or the chapel on base. Chapel on base does try to provide everything that a parish would in terms of religious education, preparation for the sacraments, uh, confessions, uh, counseling, uh, reference to the marriage tribunal, if that's necessary. The Archdiocese for the Military Services does have a, a marriage tribunal which tries uh, cases and responds to other canonical needs. Uh, we also register all of the sacraments that are celebrated on a military installation anywhere in the world are right in the basement of, of this building. So we have the sacramental records from 1920 to the present. And that's because there are no parishes in the military. There are military chaplains, uh, chapels, there are Catholic communities, but there are no parishes, no canonical parishes. So all of the sacramental records are kept here. And then um, we're responsible then for sending those out if someone makes a request because he or she needs a document uh, for, uh, for a sacrament that has been celebrated. Um, the archdiocese is also pursuing one cause for canonization for the servant of God, Vincent Capodanu, who was a chaplain to the United States Marines during Vietnam and died ministering to the troops, uh, to the Marines on the battlefield. And he was someone who always put himself forward to take care of his Marines on, on the battlefield. Sometimes someone once told me that he disobeyed so many orders that he would have been court-martialed had, uh, had, had he not died on the, on the field of battle because he was so intent on, on being there and offering the sacraments and offering counsel and encouragement to to all of the Marines, whether they were Catholic or not. And they're still, they still remember him. So we have introduced his cause for canonization. We're waiting now for the congregation to make some determination about his heroic virtues. And we'll see what the, what the next step is. And then also that they accept the miracle that has been advanced in his case. There are two other military chaplains whose causes have been introduced. The Diocese of Wichita many years ago introduced the case cause of Father Emil Capon, who was a chaplain uh, for the army during the Second World War and during Korea and died as a prisoner of war in North Korea. And then Father Verbis Lafleur on the 5th of September, that cause was opened in the Diocese of Lafayette, Louisiana. Again, a prisoner of war who died on a prison ship pushing his comrades to safety um, after the ship had been inadvertently bombed um, by the uh, allied forces as they went to liberate the Philippines. So great, great heroism on the part of, um, on the part of military chaplains. Uh, certainly, if you look at the newspapers, you know that sometimes we have challenges in terms of uh, maintaining this pastoral care, um, sometimes just defending the First Amendment rights of not only of Catholics, but of all faith groups. Um, recently, we had a little discussion about whether people could go to uh, 
church on shore or excuse me in in town um, because there was a prohibition about attending church services which were indoors luckily the navy rescinded that decision and then perhaps even more recently you've read about the difficulties with the uh, Navy in the southwestern part of the United States, where some priests who are not military chaplains, but who are contractors, they're retired military chaplains, who continue to serve the faithful of the military. Some of those contracts were, there was an attempt to cancel them uh, in order to save money. And there again, with some effort and with the help of many, many people, um, those decisions were rescinded so that the uh, pastoral care could continue. Um, and it is important, I think, to be with people in these moments of um, uh, in these moments of uh, of uh, of great challenge and great and great difficulty. Um, I don't know. Um, challenges that we continue to face as an archdiocese. One of those challenges is personnel. So um, the archdiocese should probably have about 500 priests on active duty. There are only uh, 180. So that is a severe problem that we, that we try to supplement with, uh, with contract priests um, who fulfill the duties of priests but are not military chaplains. Um, another difficulty, of course, is the uh, constant movement of our people and our chaplains. Um, secondly, uh, or another problem would be funding. All of the funding for the Archdiocese for the Military Services is private. So it's provided by foundations. The military communities are allowed four times a year to take up a collection for the archdiocese. And then we have a series of private donors as well who support the archdiocese and uh, respond to the appeals that are made. Um, sometimes uh, when we discuss these, these issues of, of religious liberty, uh, one of the problems is to help those in charge to understand that the model which is often a Protestant model of ministry, uh, is not the same thing for a Catholic. Um, we're very dependent on uh, the celebration of the Eucharist. We're very dependent on being able to go to confession. Um, we also want to be able to celebrate the sacrament of the sick. And that's not going to be able to be done unless there is a priest who is available um, for uh, the celebration of those sacraments. And that does not begin to address questions like marriage preparation, counseling, sacramental preparation, religious education, adult education, and so forth. The list is, is long. Um, as all of you have experienced, obviously COVID-19 um, provoked its, its own series of problems um, with the restrictions on the ability to gather. And that was really an opportunity for, for me to see how creative our priests can be. They really responded 
in not only in live streaming masses, but in trying to make themselves available for confessions. There's a great picture of the priests at Fort Carson in Colorado Springs, and they had organized a penance service. Well, it so happens that it snowed that night. So you have these great pictures of these priests standing in the parking lot, hearing people's confessions in their cars. And of course they're standing in the, in the snow. Um, but that's, uh, you know, that's what, what, what they do to respond to the necessity and to be able to adapt to the, the, uh, the, the situation of the moment. Um, before I address some of the questions that you have very generously spent, I'd like to just lead you, leave you with a, a reflection which a young naval officer wrote to her parents a few years ago. And I quote, I got to attend mass today. As soon as the priest began to speak the wonderful familiar words of the mass, I literally started sobbing. I miss going to mass so, so much. This was the first time in over three months that I had been able to go and I felt so blessed. The seas are high here in the Coral Sea and this ship was rocking every which way and we were cramped in this little room, but I didn't care. I love being Catholic. That's a reflection of a young naval officer uh, and her first tour of duty about the difficulty with being deprived of the mass, something that all of you certainly know from these last uh, four months when uh, being at the celebration of mass was perhaps limited to watching it on television or on some other device. Um, if I look at the questions that you've sent, um, the first one asks about um, um, leadership and care of females in the military branches. And of course, the issue there is um, any sort of ministry has to be fit into the categories that the military has. So for instance, we do have, um, at least on two installations that I know of, but there may be more, we do have religious women who are the coordinators of religious education. Uh, but they're hired by the government, they're paid by the government. And that is the way it has to be because um, chaplains, uh, to be a chaplain in the military, you have to be recognized by your religious group as being able to provide all of the ministries of an ordained ministry of an ordained minister in that community. So in the, for Catholics at any rate, chaplains are always priests. Um, we don't have deacons, we don't have lay people, we don't have religious. Um, so you must be a priest to be a chaplain. Um, but certainly Catholic coordinators, Catholic coordinators of religious education, those are positions that um, that a um, uh, that a religious woman would be able to do, provided, of course, obviously, that she has the permission of of her religious superiors. 
um, and that there is a position available. Uh, that, of course, is another um, process by which the, uh, the government hires uh, people. And it's not always, um, unfortunately, it's usually the lowest bidder rather than the person who's most qualified to, to do the job. Um, and that's a problem we deal with on a, on a regular basis. Let's see. Um, I'd like to step in a little bit. I want to, uh, I know we have all these great questions that have come in um, through our audience, um, but just listening to your talk, I had a, a few insights that I, um, or a few questions that I wanted to run by you to get your insight. Um, I know I'm a service member myself, um, and so I know I'm not the only one who has experienced within their individual command a sort of nonchalant mentality around faith, especially around a faith that's not Protestant. Um, what can we do on, like what can you do as the, the archbishop and what can the archdiocese do to help make, to help shift a command's mentality of, you know, duty first, army of one, which we need to have and is understandable, but to one that's going to be welcoming of another non-dominant faith in the military. For an example, um, you know, if you're at, um, you know, you're drilling weekly, you know, you're at a monthly drill or you're, you know, at a, you know, a two-week training or in the field and they put together a service, um, uh, like a service night and it's just for Protestant and you ask hey is there something we can do for us Catholics or can we go to the Catholic parish that's right around the block and they go no you can only go to this Protestant service um, so what can we do to address a, like a local issue like that well that that in itself would be a violation of the first amendment because uh, the uh, military has to provide okay so they um Either they have Catholic chaplains there or they provide. And one way of providing would of course be to actually to bus you to the local Catholic parish. Um, the other way that we respond to that, uh, that challenge is to have Catholic lay leaders um, who are trained and they can gather the Catholic community together and at least have a, a liturgy of the, of the word if, if nothing else. Um, so those are two possibilities. Um, but certainly, um, you know, if a command only offers a Protestant service, then they're actually uh, they're actually violating the law because they are required um, to provide for all believers, um, even if it's a very very small group, or even if it just means giving people the space where they can gather and you know perhaps like uh, followers of Islam that they might gather for a, for a Friday afternoon prayer or something like that. But that, that, that provision must be made. And usually it's the chaplain who's charged, the, even if he's a Protestant, that he's charged with providing for the uh, uh, religious needs of those who are not of his denomination. Um, that kind of segues uh, into one of our, an audience question that I just received um, over email a couple minutes ago. Um, they're wondering what role can reserve military members have in the church and with your archdiocese? Um, you kind of talked about, you know, when we're seeing this lack of ability of service members to be able to get to a Catholic service, that this is an example where uh, lay leaders can get involved. Um, how do you see service members being those lay leaders? What does that look like? Well, they can certainly, um, you know, we do offer training uh, for lay leaders. Usually it's a, uh, it's a, 
Catholic chaplain who's nearby. Um, and then they're, they're designated as lay leaders and then they can, they can gather the, the community together. Um, usually a, a lay leader is, um, if he or she is not an officer, it's, it's E5 and above um, to take on those, those responsibilities. And I think that's also to give the individual a little more uh, clout uh, with, the, with the military. Um, unfortunately, in, in many reserve units, of course, we don't, have a, we don't have a Catholic priest, although those Catholic priests who are reservists have frequently been called up um, for deployment in these, these years of, uh, of uh, conflict over in the Middle East. So I've met many, many reserve uh, priests who have been called up uh, sometimes with their unit and sometimes just as individual augmentees. So they're called up because they're a Catholic priest and sent um, and sent to uh, uh, and sent to the uh, to minister there in the uh, in the Middle East usually. Um, so does that shed a little bit of light on your on your question there? It does. Yes, um, I'd like to kind of go back to a little bit looking at religious liberty issues um, that we're seeing within you know across the branches in armed service. Um, specifically, it's no secret that the Catholic Church believes that marriage is between a man and a woman. Has the Archdiocese seen any pushback with marriage counseling, um, like, uh, you know, prophetizing um, church teaching that may be contrary to mainstream views on marriage or, you know, a variety of issues? Um, what challenges have you seen there? That's an excellent question. Basically, um, it, on conscience issues, uh, the military cannot order you to violate your conscience. So um, a military chaplain who is a Catholic priest cannot be obliged to anything, to do anything I have forbidden him to do. So he's protected in that way. Um, I did put out guidance um, when the Oberfeld uh, decision was, was announced so that the priest could appeal to this guidance. Um, and the military knows uh, there are, for instance, the, the army has what's called strong bonds re retreats and they are retreats for married couples. And of course, after that decision, you could have married couples of the same uh, gender gathered together um, and there are a number of religious groups that will not permit their chaplains to be involved with a, with a retreat if, if it's not simply for, for married couples uh, that are uh, men and women. So um, in that sense, we're not, we're not alone, but you are protected because they could not, they could not order you um, to participate in that retreat or in that activity, uh, if indeed um, your endorser, in this case, the Archbishop for the Military Services, uh, had forbidden you to do so. so Have, uh, has your Archdiocese seen any type of retaliation? I, I understand when you say, well, they can't force you to do this, but as we've seen with you know, you touched on a little bit earlier on um, with what recently happened over in California with the Navy and trying to cancel these contracts. Have you seen any type of retaliation might be a strong word, but uh, pushback uh, because of our, our stances on, on certain issues of, hey, well, 
we can't tell you what to do, but we can tell you not to be around. There is a danger um, that it wouldn't, it would never be that overt. Mm-hmm. What could happen would be uh, a, a delayed promotion, uh, something like that. That would be the, uh, and I don't have any evidence of that happening, but it's not impossible that it, it certainly would not happen uh, today, but it might've happened uh, uh, a few years ago. And that would be very difficult to prove. Yeah, no, I could see that. Um, you know, obviously our culture today is very intense to put it lightly. Um, do you foresee any real challenge with the, with the, with the chaplain's core as a whole being maintained in the future? Like, do you see that, uh, uh, do you think it's possible that the chaplain's core can be dismantled? Is that possible? It's certainly possible. Um, at the moment, the argument that has been advanced is that um, uh, military personnel have First Amendment rights. Uh, what makes you a military person, as you know, is you you raise your right hand and you swear to defend, protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States, of course, includes the First Amendment, which guarantees freedom of religion, not freedom of worship, but freedom of religion. And so uh, in general, um, you can't deny to people who are defending those rights, the same rights. However, um, anything is possible. And I think it's very important to continue to uh, monitor the situation to, um, at the moment, all five branches would uh, talk about the uh, four pillars. And one of those pillars is uh, spirituality. So that implies that there is uh, religious uh, accommodation. And of course, one of the things that a chaplain is required to do is to keep his command informed about the morale of of, uh, those that are being commanded. So uh, in one sense, the command depends on the chaplains to be, um, I don't want to say the canary, but certainly to be the, um, the, um, the one who, Keeps the command informed about what's really going on, not revealing any confidences, but certainly letting them know that you know the people are 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 well or people are depressed or 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 whatever that is. Because again, uh, you can talk to a chaplain and you know that what you say as an individual will never be repeated um, with identification of who you are. Um, so you talked a little bit about the importance of a overhauled religious education curriculum within your archdiocese because of the, the lifestyle of a military service member moving every few years or every year, you know, depending on what your role in the military is. Um, from a funding perspective, looking, you said there's not an actual parish on post, but in an area where there might be a strong Catholic presence off post, what's the like the what's the argument for maintaining any type of Catholic service on posts and not having that go through an individual parish outside 
of base outside of religious education? Or is that the, that's the main argument? No, it isn't. That isn't the only argument. There would also be the whole notion of uh, caring for people with specific needs, PTSD, mm-hmm. that average uh, priest perhaps wouldn't normally have to deal with. Um, there's also the, um, you know, uh, Joe wants to get married and has to be prepared quickly. And the local parish or the local diocese has a one year uh, program. Um, we're, we are built as an archdiocese to respond to those situations and to meet the needs of the individual uh, as they appear. And the individual is free, as I said earlier, to choose whether he's going to go off base or whether he's going to meet the needs uh, on base. But um, I, I can give you an example in the, in the midst of the uh, uh, pandemic, we had a situation where a couple had everything prepared for, uh, for marriage. They were actually going to celebrate the marriage in, uh, I can't remember if it was his or her parish. They were both Catholics. Um, they were both subjects though of the Archdiocese for Military Services. He wasn't allowed to leave base because he was going to be deployed. So the only place the marriage could be celebrated was on the installation. And the fact that I had uh, some priests there who were able to accommodate this couple made that possible. Otherwise it would not have been possible. Wow, that's a, that's a really, uh, you know, uh, not necessarily unique in today's circumstances because everyone's having to delay things, but definitely unique to, you know, a Catholic service member. And that's so great that, you know, the archdiocese is there to, to meet that need. And I definitely see the argument that you're making uh, or the arguments that you're making on why it is vital that we have this service within um, the military branches. I got a question from a viewer in the Philippines, um, kind of going, you know, we're talking about living in a COVID um, run world um, and they're attending the masses online, um, which a lot of service members are here at the CIC. We have, uh, you know, a mass that we do virtually. How can we help individuals who are scared to go back to mass in person when, uh, if a location is offering, you know, in-person mass for a limited set of people, what advice, like practical advice do you have for someone to help them um, overcome that fear so that they can be present with Christ um, physically? Well, one of the things I think I would say would be to, uh, you know, to place your confidence in, you know, in Almighty God, and especially in that, that unique presence that, uh, that, is, um, that is available um, in the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. I think one of the things that, uh, one of the most uh, striking things that Pope Francis said in that dramatic um, uh, Orbi at Orbi in uh, in March in St. Peter's Square, in an empty St. Peter's Square, was when he reminded us that Christ is in the boat. You know, and we should should have some confidence in that. and I think also I would I personally as a pastor would tell someone um, if he or she were so frightened of going back to the church that you know wait a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that uh, some confidence in in the Lord. And uh, now, of course, obviously, if someone has uh, very severe underlying conditions, then he or she should be very attentive to to what the what the doctor would uh, would tell them. But um, I think at some point, you know, we have to, 
we have to trust in the Lord and we have to, we have to move forward. Um, I think that's what I would, what I would say. Um, we had a question, uh, you know, kind of centering around the church's teaching on just war theory. And so what does, does like, does a military priest have a moral obligation to speak against the armed forces if we're entering into like an unjust war, um, into an unjust war or like is the role simply there to just serve no matter the circumstances that our military is putting our service members in well i think one of the most important things to remember is the military doesn't decide when we go to war mm -hmm. in the united states that's a decision made by the civil power mm -hmm. so the priest might want to speak against the civil power but he certainly wouldn't be speaking yeah. against the armed forces because the armed forces don't make that decision mm -hmm. Um, th that decision is made by the uh, uh, by the civil power. However, um, there again, a priest always has to respect his his his, con uh, his his conscience. So I think if he felt that uh, being in involved in the in this particular conflict, um, he would probably have to resign his commission and get out. Um, uh, unfortunately, in the United States. Um, we do have um, conscience protection, okay? But um, you can't specifically say, I won't stay in the military because I'm against this war. You have to say, I won't stay in the military because I'm against all war. So to be a conscientious objector in the United, and it's always the chaplain, by the way, who'd be your, your advocate, who'd help to get you out because he's the one that has to, has to do that for a conscientious objector. Now we have had examples of uh, conscientious objectors who served uh, the great uh, story of Hacksaw Ridge uh, with that young man who uh, served as a medic and ended up saving the lives of 40 people, but refused to bear an arm. Um, just one of the reasons of course, why uh, you know, we're very insistent that clerics are not armed. So chaplains in the military are not armed. Someone asked that question um, uh, because they are not combatants. They are there clearly to meet uh, religious and human needs. And so they respond to that. Uh, but there again, um, the military does respect your conscience. Um, but in that instance, the way uh, the way, at least for a chaplain, would be to just get out of the get out of the military. In previous wars, when they were more state to state, um, such as in World War II, um, military chaplains, uh, priests, you know, would be out on the battlefield, you know, doing last rites. Uh, in today's warfare, you know, which is more, um, is not state to state. You know, it's terrorist level based, um, and it's in these urban centers. Are the chaplains who are currently deployed, are they only staying now like on base? Like, are they in these instances where they could be doing last rites if necessary? If They certainly could be. And particularly Catholic priests because they're at such a premium, uh, they're usually um, moved from forward operating base to forward operating base, at least in a combat situation, um, because there is such a shortage. So they're moved so they'd be able to minister to a group in a remote area and then move somewhere else. And they do this usually by helicopter. They 
priest might have an hour, an hour and a half at the installation. He'd be available to hear confessions. Um, perhaps he'd celebrate mass and then he'd be moved somewhere else. Um, so yes, they could find themselves in, uh, uh, in a combat situation. Of course, the only priest to die uh, from his wounds in Iraq was Father Timothy Vakash, uh, who was wounded by a, uh, a roadside bomb and he, he didn't die there, but was, he was actually on his way to visit troops in a forward operating base and then was brought home to Minneapolis-St. Paul and eventually died there uh, a couple years later. Um, we have time for one more question. And the one I have here, it's a, it's a two-part question. And I think it's a great question to close um, this event on. And it's what inspires you what, what do, how does the archdiocese, your archdiocese inspire you and what is your greatest struggle as well? <laughs> well, probably the second question is the, is the easier one to answer. And that's the, uh, the, the greatest struggle is, is finding more priests who can serve as chaplains on active duty. That's certainly my, um, you know, my greatest desire. And it's certainly that which I dedicate the most time to. What inspires me are the people that I'm privileged to serve. Um, they're wonderful people. They're committed. They're the largest source of priestly vocations in the United States today. Um, and so it really is an honor to, uh, uh, to be with them. It's an honor to minister to them. It's an honor to provide for their needs. And uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for that, uh, for that opportunity. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, well, before COVID, I spent about 200 days a year on the road. That's a lot of days on the road. <laughs> certainly is. So in one sense, if, if there are any blessings that came from COVID, it's the fact that I've spent the last 12 weeks more time in Washington than I have in the last 12 years. Um, but it's, um, it is great ministry because they're great people, uh, great families, great individuals. Um, and you are able to be with people in, in very crucial moments of, of their lives. Um, and that is also a, a, tremendous, uh, a tremendous privilege. I can see the joy that that gives you um, just by listening to you talk and, and seeing your face on the screen. I wish we could have been here in person. Um, if, do you have any last remarks that you'd like to share with the audience um, you know, before, before we go? Well, I, I think, um, yes, I, I, I would like, again, like to say thank you for this opportunity, because I do think that what the Archdiocese does is not particularly well known. Um, I'd also ask you to uh, ask the audience to, uh, to pray for the military and to pray for peace. Uh, one of the things I've learned in the last 12 years is uh, certainly the group in the United States most interested in peace it's the military because they pay firsthand the costs of war. They know what it means. Um, they see their friends die. Um, they see the separation that it causes in families. Um, they see the tremendous uh, difficulties that arise from war. So I would ask you all to uh, uh, you know, pray for our men and women in the military, pray for their families, but also pray for world peace that uh, it's sometime soon, men and women who have differences will learn to sit down at a table and talk about those differences and resolve them 
rather than resorting to war. Thank you so much, Archbishop Timothy Broglio. We've been so happy to have you here for this event. Um, audience, thank you so much for joining us. If you want to tune in to other events like this, um, please join our listserv, subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can stay up to date on all the latest that the Catholic Information Center um, has to offer. And I hope you all have a wonderful night and God bless. <laughs>